I want to begin with an apology. Um, the sermon text is not going to be Ecclesiastes 3. It's actually uh, probably my fault for sending uh, for uh, a typo. We're going to actually be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 uh, in the first 11 verses. So I'll give you just a second to uh, find the text. Um, I do want to begin with a word of thanks. Uh, we are absolutely delighted and honored that we can partner with you in the gospel. Um, we are your debtors. You enable us to, to be your hands and feet, uh, Christ's hands and feet in Europe. Um, in short, um, my longing is this. Europe was the first continent to be Christianized. It is the first continent to be de-Christianized. And my deepest longing is that together with you, through your prayers and resources, we see it to be the first continent that is re-Christianized for the gospel. So um, we are your debtors. I'm not going to talk about Europe <clears throat> directly uh, this, uh, this morning uh, you know, as I preach, but I am going to uh, direct you to one of the, one, the most immensely practical books uh, you know, of all time. If you are wrestling with the question, how do we, as Christians, engage with skeptics in an increasingly post-Christian secular culture? How? What is the gospel? How do you preach? How do you teach the gospel in a secular age? That's very much the water that we and the Riegers swim in in Europe, and increasingly so in the U.S. And one of the most helpful books is the book to which we will now turn our attention the book of Ecclesiastes. If you would follow along with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, you will notice that the text picks up mid-conversation. The, the text is really a part of a thought experiment. What if, what if, would you imagine with me what it would be like if all there was was just that which we see under the sun? What would it be like? What conclusions would that lead us to? And we jump in mid-conversation. Uh, verse 1, And I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold, uh, hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had, a, had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and, pro and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me. In Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and all this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered 
all that my hands had done and the toil I had expected in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to him. If you have read the book of Ecclesiastes, it can be confusing, shocking, and quite depressing. Um, it starts off with this bang. Meaningless. Meaningless. All is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, that's an attention getter. Um, and then it introduces a conflict that you know, goes to chapter 2, verse 17, and it, it sinks to this. So, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. Now, if you're a skeptic this morning, skeptic towards Christianity, at this point, I hope you can at least agree with me that the Bible is at this point blatantly honest. The fact that you find such statements from the lips of one who's struggling with religion is one of the reasons why I find the Bible trustworthy. It hides nothing, even doubt on the darkest of days. So if you come this morning with doubts, let me encourage you that you will more than likely find your very doubts that you carry this morning expressed within Scripture. Here's the question he's asking. Is all of life pointless? What's the meaning of life? And one of the reasons why I love this book, one of the reasons why I love Scripture, is because it not only expresses the questions, the deepest, darkest questions we all have or will have, but it also points us to the most satisfying answers you will find. So one of the main questions that in, that's being asked in the early chapters in this book is this. Not only what's the meaning of life, but why? Why don't we find ultimate satisfaction in our hobbies, in our work, in our relationships? And the answer, I'm going to give you the answer at the back of the book, right up front. The answer is this that you'll find in Ecclesiastes as well as running throughout Scripture. Because God has imposed a purposeful curse on the created order. An intentional curse. Let me read. Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation, I quote, for the creation was subjected to frustration or futility or vanity or meaningless, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and a hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. Paul's using the same word in Greek, which is translated meaningless or vanity in Hebrew. So in other words, when you read Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is like a 3D picture of the groan that each and every one of us faces, faces every day. The book is unpacking this intentional curse and pointing us to the 
secure. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 2 very briefly. What are the ways that Ecclesiastes is unpacking this frustration in chapter 2? Three areas. Wealth, work, and wisdom. Wealth, work, and wisdom. Look at the first three verses. He talks about pleasures and wealth. He's imagining a life with any sensual pleasure he wanted. That is anything he could taste and touch and smell and see. He has access to everything that money can buy. And so here's my quick summary of the first 11 verses. He starts with homebrew, goes to talk about hamburgers, houses, hordes of cash, harems, home theaters, and domestic help. And then verse 10, whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. Now, before you think, boy, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Notice this conclusion, verse 11. I considered it all, all of it, vanity, meaningless, like striving after the wind. None of it satisfies. Now, the image, uh, the, the image of chasing after the wind, I think, is really helpful. When you live for pleasure, whatever it may be, sacred or secular, it's like chasing after the wind, now think about it. You can feel wind, can't you? You can see the effect that wind has on things, but you can't hold it. You can't keep it. You can't grab it. You can't bottle it. So living ultimately for pleasure is a feeling that doesn't last. It's, it, it's elusive, passing. It fades as quickly as it comes. Now, the thing that strikes me as I study this text was this. There is no indication that pleasure is wrong. It's not that pleasure is never pleasurable. Actually, if you read through scriptures, you are actually commanded to enjoy things. Serve the Lord with gladness. Rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, becoming a Christian doesn't mean becoming a bore, a killjoy. The point is that the more that you pursue pleasure, the more that you pursue it, the more elusive it becomes. It's like a chasing after the wind if you're expecting it to ultimately satisfy you. It's not wrong. It's just ephemeral. So let me apply this. One of the things that the text is, is reminding us of is this. You become what you like. You become more and more like the thing that you love most, the thing that satisfies you most, the thing in which you take greatest pleasure. What does your pursuit of pleasure tell you about you? Is your pursuit an alternative to the pleasures of God, or does it flow out of a profound contentment in the pleasures of God? Now, you may be asking, how in the world do I know the difference between those two? I would argue it's fairly simple. Does your leisure time, your vacation time, have God in it? Are the things that you're doing uh, in pursuit of pleasure something that you'd want God hanging around for? Think about your Netflix playlist. You feel comfortable inviting Jesus to watch everything that you're watching. 
What is, what, why do you pursue pleasure? Are you trying to, to, to kill some pain from the past? Or is it out of a sense of lack that's driving your pursuit of pleasure? In other words, he's saying pleasure is not wrong, but it will never satisfy. That leads us to the second point. There is an intentional frustration of work. Verse seven, 10, verse 10 and then verse 17 so he talks about building an estate. He experiences the pleasure of success and money. He becomes an achiever. He takes great delight in his work, and he basks in the reward of his labor. But in a sober moment, he looks back on all his projects, all his endeavors, all his initiatives, everything that he's toiled to achieve, verse 11, and then he realizes, you know what? They have no eternal significance. It's like the old saying, no one says on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. All his projects, all the toils, they too are meaningless, a chasing after the wind, verse 11. And then he gives us two reasons if you keep reading in the text. First, whatever he's done, whatever he dies, he has to leave it to someone else. And secondly, he can't determine who his heir will be necessarily. Will it be somebody who's wise or a fool? It could be that everything he has built up will be torn down shortly after his death. I was talking to a missionary very recently who, with tears in his eyes, said, David, you know, the two men in which I've invested two decades of my life, both have left their wives and left the ministries completely. Some argue that Solomon is the writer of this uh, text, and it's almost as if, if that's the case, that Solomon anticipated what his own son, Rehoboam, would do. Most of what Re uh, Solomon had built up, his son tore down. Let me apply this. Why do you work? Why? Uh, if your honest answer is, I work in order that I can finally get a house. I work in order that I can get a better house. Or I work in order to get a better house in a better neighborhood. Or to get a fabulous vacation, to finally have that stock portfolio that I've longed for. What happens when you die? Your children get it. Now, children, we love you. <laughs> and we have a wonderful plan for your life. But ultimately, we have no idea what you'll do with it. What if you leave it to a fool? What was the point of all your years of toil? It puts work in perspective. It's not that work is wrong. It's not that work is wrong. It's just that placing work at the center of our lives leaves us ultimately unsatisfied. That means there, has, there must be something more meaningful than work. And that leads us to the third point, frustration of wisdom. And here we're going to look at verses 12 to 16. So he pursues wisdom and knowledge. He says, I turned and considered wisdom and, the ma and madness and folly. What he's talking about is there is great satisfaction in getting an education and gaining knowledge for practical skills in life. There is a great satisfaction in studying uh, philosophy and uh, using reason to figure out the meaning of the universe, the design of God's amazing order to creation. But if that's the pursuit of your life, ultimately it's like chasing after wind. Why? Because in the end, he realizes that both the wise and the fool end up dead. 
They both face the same fate, if you will, verse 14. Very few of us in this room will ever be remembered long after our deaths. Very few of us. He doesn't deny that the path of wisdom is far better than foolishness. Look at verses 13, or verse 13. But he makes clear that death trumps both. In other words, if you're pursuing wisdom, following the way that God has ordered for his creation, following the commands that bring us life and not destruction, even that path leads to destruction or it leads to death. So if you're pursuing wisdom's blessing just for the sake of having a life less full of destruction, you're pursuing wisdom for the wrong reasons. It cannot hinder the destruction of death. All will die. That's why people like uh, John, uh, John Paul Sartre and Kierkegaard and Camus would say things like, if life, if all there is, if this life is all there is, when you die, you rot, and eventually the sun's going to go out, civilization dies, no one will remember what you do. And you know what that means. Here was their conclusion. It doesn't matter how you live. It really doesn't matter how you live. You could be nice, nasty, or extremely naughty. You could be brilliant or brilliantly stupid. You could be a philanthropist who gives all millions to the poor or an extortionist who robs unsuspecting of billions. It doesn't matter. The end result is the same. Everything you will do will be forgotten. Everyone will be forgotten. Now, aren't you glad you came this morning? Where do we find a hope in a text like this? I would argue a text like this in a secular age in which we live points us to the beauty and the hope that you will only find in the gospel more so than many other texts in scripture. Where is our hope? Our hope needs to be in a person, not in wealth, not in work, not in wisdom. What it's arguing is that in Christ, you have all the joy, all the, uh, all the contentment, and all the wisdom you need. You see, the bottom line is this. The bad news for skeptics and Christians alike is this. The deep satisfaction that you find from things in this world is elusive. It cannot be found. The deep satisfaction that we all long to get from our work, work which gives us a sense of identity, is impossibly fragile. When we live a life for pleasure, projects, or, person, or professional development, we live contrary to how the Creator has made us to live. But the good news is this, and Jesus puts it this way, I have come to give you life. Not just a grin and bear it life, but life to the full. It's not a life free of pain, but it's a life full of purpose and meaning. That's, why, that's what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. It means that what Christ has done, gives, what he gives us is of incomparable value in comparison to anything this world could possibly offer you. One pastor put it this way, fill in the blank, what do you live for? Pleasure, work, wisdom, 
whatever you put in there, if it's just, if it's something that's under the sun, for you to live is fill in the blank, death is loss. The only thing you can fill that blank in is Christ. The only thing for which you can live for, for which death is gain, is Christ. The good news is this, the creator, the true God has given to each of us in this room an identity like none other. You are uniquely created to bear an image, and he has designed your life with all your gifts, all, all the gifts that he's given you, like an artist tapestry, and at the center of your relationship with him is unconditional love. He doesn't base his love for you on all the ups and downs of your performance at work or in relationships. The good news is this identity, the fact that you are a beloved son or daughter of the king of kings creates a new freedom to live. You are no longer controlled by any force or object or desire or dream in this world. Rather, you live in relationship with one who continually, persistently, sometimes, in my, if I'm honest, obnoxiously holds his promises before my eyes. The promise that on the cross, all death, all evil, all futility, all meaningless has been conquered. Death was killed. Jesus' death and resurrection was the historical proof that a reversal of meaningless is taking place. We live in a time where evil is still present, death still happens, but the promise of the resurrection is this. The purposeful curse is not the end of the story. The same world subjected to futility and frustration was liberated from bondage to decay through the cross and resurrection. For a believer, if you have put your, your faith in Christ, nothing is meaningless. We can enjoy the sunset, sex, song, art, ambition, adventure, wealth, work, and wisdom, because there is something more and greater than all of these, so that none of these become objects to be extorted as long as you live. They are gifts to be enjoyed because they point us. All these wonderful things, they point you to the beauty of Christ, the riches of his grace, the songs of his mercy, the boundless love of the Father, the assurance of his mission. His work, his promise, he is making all things new. Everything you do apart from Christ will feel like salt water to a thirsty soul. It's frustrating, dissatisfying, but even the most mundane, boring, seemingly meaningless task in Christ is transformed to something of eternal significance. I'll end with this. One of the most, one of the most famous quotes from C.S. Lewis comes from his chapter on hope in mere Christianity. He starts off by saying, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, paraphrasing, I couldn't even do it with a British accent if I tried. But he says, quote, if you're young, you may not have experienced this, uh, this yet. But as, you, but as you get older, you're going to realize that all the things that you thought were going to make you happy don't. The job you thought would make you happy, the marriage you thought would make you happy, the travel you thought would make you happy. At first, it, it, it may seem 
It's finally going to do it. It's finally going to give me hope. It's finally going to make me satisfied. And then he says, and I'm not talking about bad marriages. I'm not talking about bad trips. I'm not talking about a bad job. I'm talking about the best ones. You will, you're going to find out that none of them actually satisfies. There is still a growing emptiness in you. And then he says, now, at that point, you have three choices. First, the, the first one is to say, well, I just need to get a better job, a better spouse, a better trip. That just makes you an insatiable hedonist. The second thing is to do is to say, well, there is no happiness. There is no satisfaction. I just have to harden myself, stop crying after the moon, and become cynical. That just makes you a nuisance. And ultimately, it will dehumanize you. It's going to kill a part of your heart that was intended to experience joy and happiness. And then third, the third possibility he says is this, and here's the quote. Ducklings want to swim. There is such a thing as water. Babies want to suck milk. There is such a thing as milk. Desires do not exist unless satisfaction for those desires exist. And if you find yourself, in yourself, a desire for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, it probably means you were made for another world. Jesus would say, to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary of trying to find satisfaction with things under the sun? Jesus says, I, and I alone will give you rest. I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. You were made to find satisfaction in me and in me alone. The satisfaction for which you find in this world for things under the sun are intentionally limited in order that you find limitless joy, happiness, and a satisfaction through your identity in him and in him alone. Let's pray.